0: everybody to River Valley Church this weekend. If you're joining us online, thank you for being here, for being part of worship this weekend. As you saw in the video, this is uh, our series called Go. It's our annual series tied to life groups, and we hope you're in a life group. Uh, But this is week two of the series, and uh, we are super excited this weekend to have a special guest with us. Pastor Rob described him as a legend in the area of missions, and uh, Bob Hoskins is the founder of One Hope, and the vision of One Hope is to, it's real simple. It's they want to share the message of Jesus Christ and get the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the hands of every child all around the world. How many think that's a big vision, right? And so it is, and we love that. We love to partner, and Kingdom Builders does partner with this con- this ministry every year, One Hope, and, and at the end of the service, we're going to receive a second offering, and we'll talk about that incredible project that we get to be a part of this year, 2016. But So right now, let's just get ready for all that God has. For us, would you just give a really warm welcome this weekend to Bob Hoskins?
1: Welcome. Thanks, Darren. Love Love you, brother. Love you. you. Thank you, Pastor. And uh, good morning, friends. What a delight. It's a joy that I have anticipated for some time. We have been in partnership for a long time, and this is my first opportunity to actually visit. And I am so excited to be here and to say thank you. Thank you for your partnership that's helped One Hope take God's Word around the world to over 1 billion children. This year alone, together, we will reach over 100 million children. A little later, uh, Pastor Darren is going to talk about the Bible app for kids, which we released uh, less than two years ago. And uh, it is now the number one children's app in the world. Not the number one Bible app, not the number one uh, Christian app. It is the number one children's app. So we give God glory for that. That literally every country, every country of the world has downloaded God's Word through the Bible app. And he'll talk more about that. Let me also mention that I think probably at the welcome table, There are some items from One Hope, some things that I hope you'll pick up and take home with you. There are some items, a book that my wife uh, finished just before she went to heaven this last year, and I know this book will bless your life. There are uh, special editions of the Book of Hope, deluxe editions, that were prepared for the member, the people that attend the uh, President's Bible Breakfast next uh, month in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, we provide those by offering them to you. So for $10, you get one for yourself, and you also provide one for a prime minister or an ambassador who is visiting America next uh, month. as a part of the prayer breakfast. So just take your liberty and look at those things. Some some while ago, I received a letter from a lady in which she reflected that she had just listened uh, on cassette, if you can believe it, to a sermon that I preached in 1975. That's, wow, that's almost 40 years ago. Uh, The sermon uh, based on Genesis chapter 6 was simply titled, Violence, and her reflection was that the things that I had foreseen and foretold in that message 40 years ago were indeed reality. I had predicted that violence would continue to increase across this planet, and all the efforts of the United Nations, the government of the United States, would be unable to bring violence under control. Somehow, we all thought that with the end of the Cold War, that uh, the world would become a better and safer place to live. We expected there would be a long period of peace and prosperity and stability. But in reality, the post-Cold War world is more dangerous than anything that we ever experienced before. Today, the escalation of violence is evidence that what I foresaw and foretold is indeed coming to pass. I could, I could walk through the events of the past uh, years: Al Qaeda, the bombing of uh, the Trade Center, the rise of incidents in Nairobi, Benghazi, ISIS. Uh, we could fill books with all of these events, with these international networks that are dedicated to revolution using violence as their as their modus operandi. There is also the constant threat of a nuclear holocaust. North Korea, we saw it this last uh, few weeks. They have exploded their first, not uh, atomic bomb, their first hydrogen bomb. Iran, we read about that every day. All of these are are flashpoints that uh, many say could be ignited in a moment, and the prediction is that hundreds of millions of people could perish. In my message in 1975, I said emphatically that all of the efforts to try to bring violence under control and to create stability on this planet were doomed to failure. That violence would increase because the Bible makes it clear there is no continuing future for this world system. I want to read from the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to be reading verse 11. I see some of you actually have Bibles, and I am sure others of you are going to your iPad or your smartphone. So go to Genesis chapter 6, and then be prepared to switch over to Revelation, the 17th, 18th chapter. Uh, You've heard of those preachers who preach all the way from Genesis to Revelation, and now this morning you have one. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth, had corrupted their way. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, God's word. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 18. It would be appropriate for this message for me to read the entire 17th and 18th chapters. For the sake of time, I'm going to do some editing, beginning with verse number 2 from chapter 18. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. And in the next verses, he lists the sins of Babylon, which are multiple, and continues in verse 8 saying, Therefore, in one day, or because of her sins, in one day plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, famine, She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her, terrified at her torment. They will stand afar off and cry, Woe, woe to you great city, you mighty city Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, "'The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her "'because no one buys their merchandise anymore.'" And then he inventories all of the riches and treasures uh, continuing in verse 16, "'Woe, woe, woe to you, great city, "'dressed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, "'glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls.'" For in one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ships, sailors and all who learn their living from the sea will stand afar off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? God's words. It is interesting and I think ironical that for many years the world's and Earth's future has not been so much foretold by prophets and preachers as it has people representing other disciplines. We could fill this room with books written by economists and sociologists and nuclear physicists. Their prediction about what is going to happen on this planet are dark and foreboding, Some time ago, a leading nuclear physicist was quoted as saying that it is his opinion a future nuclear confrontation was inevitable, and his prediction was that hundreds of millions of people on this planet were going to perish. All of these paint a very dark and foreboding picture of the future. I lived with my family in the city of Beirut, Lebanon during the horrible civil war that destroyed that city and destroyed that country. And I tried during those years to sift through all of the multiplicity of impressions and find what was a lesson for me and my family and our colleagues, and yes, a lesson for you. And It is interesting that the two things that were the most astonishing to me are the same two things that I've just read about in Genesis chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 18. Now in Genesis chapter 6, God tells us, very frankly, you don't have to be a theologian. He tells us very frankly why Noah's generation was destroyed. He said… Very plainly, they have filled the earth with violence, and because they have filled the earth with violence, I am going to destroy them with the earth. There it is. The reason is violence. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, when the disciples were asking Jesus concerning the end time and the time of his return, his declaration was, as it was in the days of Noah, So, shall it also be in the days of the return of the Son of Man. I don't think I need to take any time to prove to anybody in this room that we live in a world increasingly violent. The thing that was most astonishing living in Lebanon was how a city, which had to be at that time one of the safest cities in the world, my wife and her lady friends could walk the streets any time of day or night without any fear. That's how safe the city was, and then suddenly it exploded. It started with the indiscriminate machine gunning of a busload of people, and it escalated from there until indescribable horror. People were tied alive behind Jeeps, uh, and at the end of the rope, dragged down the street with their body beating, banging against the pavement until there was literally nothing left at the end of the rope. In Revelation 18, John gives what is, I think, the most apt description of the demise of the the city of Beirut. He talks about the air being filled with the smoke of their torment. That is exactly what I saw in Lebanon. Because of the snipers and because of the gunfire, people couldn't leave their apartments. And so they had to just throw their trash and their garbage over the balcony out into the street. And snipers would shoot anybody that moved, and then when there was a lull and people could get out, they would go out into the street and pour gasoline or some inflammable on the garbage and the bodies and try to keep disease down by… and the smoke… Of those uh, garbage piles and decomposing bodies filled the air with such a stench that at night, even with shutters down and windows closed, you often had to sleep with a with a cloth over your over your face because of the horrible stench. So I say with all due respect to the Presidency of the United States to the United Nations or anyone else that is trying to bring world order and trying to bring stability in the midst of this violence, according to God's word, they are doomed to failure. The second thing that was most astonishing in the city of Lebanon was how a city that had become not just a financial capital of the world, uh, but uh, by their incredible inflow of petrodollars, the strongest banks. The Lebanese lira, little known, was backed 90% by gold. The uh, streets were choked with exotic automobiles. Uh, millions of dollars passed the casino tables every 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 night. Men became millionaires, billionaires, not in a matter of years or months, but sometimes in a matter of hours. One deal, one signature. There was so much momentum to this prosperity that it seemed that nothing could ever impede it. Nothing could ever ever slow it down. And then, with a with a suddenness that leaves the mind reeling in disbelief. What did the prophet here say in the revelation? In one hour, it all comes to naught. Now, I've said that John's description here in Revelation 18 describes more aptly than any contemporary reporter a picture of Lebanon. So, am I implying that Beirut is this mystical Babylon that we're trying to discover here? Well, certainly not. But it's interesting that in prophetic study before the major foretold event, there are often miniature examples so that he that hath an ear to hear, are you listening? And he that hath an eye to see will be cognizant of the hour or the time in which he lives. And I think that's very well what Beirut may have been. Well, if Beirut is not that mystical Babylon, is is it a literal city that's to be rebuilt? Before the Iran-Iraqi War, the Iraqis had contracted with uh, Japanese firms and their plan was to literally rebuild the city of Babylon in the desert of Iraq. Is that what the prophet is talking about? Well, of course, we know that is not it. It is is the mystical Babylon, the Roman Catholic Church. There are some that have zealously proclaimed that the Roman Catholic Church is the harlot of, of, of Revelation 17 and 18. If you turn back to those chapters, you will find that there are two characters that fill the earth stage. One is a beast and one is a woman. And Bible scholars are mostly agreed that the one, the woman, represents the apostate ecclesiastical system of the world, not the Roman Catholic Church per se, but all apostate Christianity of which you must agree there is a great deal. And the other represents the world's civil system. So, if you accept that, then you have some answers. But first, you have to go all the way back to a place called Babel. Remember? Remember the tower? It was there where man decided his system was sufficient, that he didn't need God anymore. In fact, he defied God by building a tower in which he proclaimed that he would reach uh, God in his heaven And it was a rebellious spirit in the heart of man that God saw, and it was an abomination. And so God scattered the people and confounded their language. The sin was not the building of a tower. The sin was the defiance of God, that we don't need God. Our intelligence, our super system is sufficient. And especially in this day in which you and I live with advanced technology more and more, that is the attitude Today, we don't call it the same. It goes under the title of secular humanism or some other name, but it is the same system. It is man believing that he doesn't really need God. He can create his own environment and build his own world. Prominent in recent years, there has been a movement that's designated kingdom now. It's also called the Reconstructionist Movement, sometimes referred to as theonomy or dominion theology. The idea is that the church, through the preaching of the gospel, can take control of the systems of the world. Political, economic, ecclesiastical, and by taking control of the world system, the church will begin to legislate righteousness and sobriety and bring order to the planet so that there will be a nice planet for Christ to return to. This, of course, is contrary to everything the Scripture teaches about the kingdom of God. This present world, the Bible leaves no doubt, is in travail under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. This is a mystery of how or why God allowed it to be so, and yet we know it is so because the Scripture says it, and we see it in reality. No, my friends, listen closely. The world is not going to get better and better, even through the efforts of the church and the preaching of the gospel it is clear of course that the kingdom of god has come but it has come to the individuals who receive and acknowledge christ's lordship over their lives the scripture shows us that the kingdom came with the coming of christ he instituted it he inaugurated it through his death his resurrection the kingdom made its appearance on this fallen planet But the planet is still under the domination of sin, Satan, and death. You need only to look around to understand that. And these enemies of God are still at work on this planet. Their their destruction is still out in the future, somewhere that God has designated. But God's kingdom has come, and it is available to those who are in Christ Jesus. This world and its systems are doomed to failure God's ancient prophets have foreseen and foretold it. The word says that the earth will roll up like a scroll. Peter declared that in one flash of fervent, violent heat, the earth would literally vanish, melt away. I'm talking about this planet that we live on. I'm talking about this system that you and I are a part of today, and it is a dark picture. Increasing violence, continuing economic upheaval, possibly total collapse of all systems, resulting in worldwide anarchy and death in the streets. That's the picture painted by God's Word. And the question is, how ought we to live on what is a dying planet? What are we to do? Run away and sequester ourselves in a cave somewhere? Uh, I know people that think that uh, it's called the survival movement. You buy so much gold. You buy so much silver. uh, You buy this special food that will last for 25 years. My goodness, who would want to eat anything that was 25 years old? I... Even in, this, uh, in the economic downturn, the survival, survival business prospered. Good news for you that have pets. They, I, I saw the other day they even have survival food for your pets, so you can take, uh, take your pet along with you in your, in your retreat, stocked with gold and silver and food and, of course, guns, so you can defend yourself. I can tell you what happened to people in Lebanon who built fortresses and stocked them with food and water and had security guards to protect them. People knew that that's where there was food and water and guns, and those were the first places that were attacked and destroyed, and the people within those fortresses perished. How ought the child of God live on a dying planet? Well, before we deal with that question, we have to answer the question that is the basis of all philosophy. All philosophy is based on the question, where did I come from, why am I here, and where am I going? And if you don't know the answer to that question, you haven't even started. It is said that the Kaiser Wilhelm one day stood before a classroom filled with children and pointing to a flower in his lapel, a ring on his finger, and a bird flying past the window. He asked the school children to which Kingdom. Each of those items belong. And well, versed little students, they answered, of course, vegetable, animal, and mineral, and got an A for the right answer. And then the Kaiser asked them, what is probably the supreme question facing all humanity? He asked them, to which kingdom do you belong? And well-educated little children answered, I guess, Animal and got another A for the right answer, but was it the right answer? Is it the right answer? What about Jesus? To which kingdom did he belong? Can we only think of Jesus in biological terms? Well, what did he say here in the Word again and again when he was here on this earth? Look at the record. You'll discover that he said it not once, not twice, number of times, different ways, different places. He wanted there to be no misunderstanding. He declared, my kingdom is not of this world. And in John chapter 17, which we call the priestly prayer, he prays for his disciples and he makes it clear he's not just praying for them, but he says, For all those who will believe on me through them, which means you and me, if we believe in Jesus. Father, I thank you for these whom you have given me. I am praying for them, for the world has hated them because. They are not of this world. Not of this world. What is Jesus talking about? And then he repeats it. And if you understand the oral tradition of first century Palestine, where there is a repetition, and especially if a repetition is in rapid succession, underline it. You found the key. Jesus says again, Father, listen, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but deliver them from the evil, for they are not of the world. What does he mean? Not of the world. World. Here we are wearing our Walmart suits and eating our McDonald's hamburger and drinking our crystal water. Certainly, we are of, of this world. You see, there's confusion as I indicated earlier about the kingdom. In common Christian idiom, we often contrast the life of the present with that of the future by the use of the words earth and heaven. We live our bodily life here on earth, and the future salvation will be consummated in heaven. A more philosophical approach uh, contrasts time and eternity as though they represented two different modes of existence. Our present life exists exists in time while the future life will be in eternity. We see this in hymns like when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. But this concept, understand, is foreign to the biblical view. The biblical worldview involves a linear concept that eternity, as it belongs to the redemptive history, is unending time. So that to be in Christ Jesus, are you listening? is to be in the kingdom of God. The idea I'm here now, I'm in this world, but at death or the coming of Christ, I will be transferred from the earth and its systems, and then I will enter the kingdom of God is contrary to what the scripture makes clear. The problem is with semantics, words. We say, we preach, we sing, we talk about heaven. We say we are going to heaven. We understand that heaven is a place. We think of it in geography. It has lakes, it has gates, it has streets. All the description of heaven relates to the concept of geography, and so we see ourselves now in this geography, earth and time, and when we die or Christ comes, we are going to be moved from this earth time into the kingdom of God. Now, heaven may be a place. Heaven may be geography. But understand friends the kingdom of God is not a place and the kingdom of God is not geography in the beatitudes the sermon on the mount Jesus said happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. He uses the verb for the here, the now, the present, the immediate. He didn't say there is going to be the kingdom of God. He didn't say when they die, they will enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say in a rapture, they will enter the kingdom of God. No, Jesus said to be in Christ Jesus is to be in the kingdom of God now and presently. Paul as you will recall, understood this. He tried to make it clear that when you enter by faith into Jesus Christ, in that moment you are transplanted out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of the world and Satan into the kingdom of God. I am not waiting for death to take me into the kingdom of God. I am not waiting for a rapture to take me into the kingdom of God. My friend, when by faith I entered into Jesus Christ at That moment I became a citizen of his everlasting eternal kingdom. I meet people today that are almost, they, they come to be almost trembling in fear. They say, oh, I hear of all the calamity that's going to come on the world and the violence that's going to increase and, and and I thought the church was going to be raptured before all this started and now I got a book and it says the church is going to go through the tribulation and, and, and another one that said, no, the church will go through half the tribulation but they'll be raptured before the wrath of God. Oh, please tell me that I won't have to be here to take the mark of the beast. I, 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 I know, I don't know what I would do, and they're trembling in fear. You want me to answer that question for you once and for all? So you don't have to buy any more CDs or <laughs> get any more books? I have the only answer. The answer is, it doesn't matter. I could care less. If the rapture takes place before the tribulation or the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation or if we're in the tri- tribulation, that's not the question. The question is, to which kingdom do you belong? This is what Paul understood. Here's how he sh- – I think he was shouting it out. In Romans, in Romans chapter 8, he's, 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 uh, he's saying, who shall separate us? From the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus. And he starts out with tribulations. You notice that? Shall tribulation separate us from God, which is in Christ Jesus? He goes on to say not only about tribulation, but distress and persecution and famine and peril and sword. Need declares now, but in all these things we are more than conquerors. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. The question, which kingdom do you belong to? If the rapture takes place before the tribulation, hallelujah, I'm in the kingdom of God and I'm ready to go. If the rapture takes place in the middle of the tribulation, I'm still in the kingdom of God. If the rapture doesn't take place until after the tribulation, I'm still in the kingdom of God. And if the tribulation's already happened and over, I'm still in the kingdom of God. The Bible speaks in such picturesque terms as being in Christ translated out of darkness into light, translated out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. I'm not waiting for death or the rapture to take me. In that moment when by faith I confess my sin and I ask Christ to become my Redeemer and the Lord of my life, in that moment the transformation took place. In that moment I became a citizen of God's everlasting kingdom. And with all due respect to this country and its history, my citizenship, my friends, has been established in another kingdom. My citizenship is forever established in the kingdom of God. God, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that this world hates us. Jesus told us in this world you will have… I I see these… You know, on Facebook and there's these others where, where people are, are, are lamenting that the world hates us Christians and we're, we're being uh, persecuted and, uh, and we act like uh, it's a big surprise. Jesus said, the world will hate you just like they hated me. You will have much tribulation. The answer is always, always, always the same. To which kingdom do you belong? What can the world do to me anyway? Kill me? Is that the worst thing they can do? I face death there have been documented assassination attempts on my life. I've sat in a prison with a gun against my uh, uh, head knowing that in seconds my brains would be torn out of my body. And, and you know the only thing I thought of, I thought of my children were young then. And I thought, hey, I'm not going to see how they grow up. My wife later asked me, why didn't you think about me? I said, well, I already knew how you grew up. But in that moment, there was this most wonderful, indescribable sense of peace and tranquility that overcame me. You see, death for the child of God is simply stepping out of one dimension of the kingdom that we are in into another dimension of the same kingdom, and isn't it sad that we here who are kingdom people, we who Jesus declared are not of this world, we're out there in the arena with the rest of them, mixing it up, fighting, scratching, accumulating, piling it up. Just like everybody else, as if it was going to be there forever. Now, if you have a lot of stuff, don't fly off on a guilt trip. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. The problem is, most people don't have things, things have people, and there is a world of difference. So, if you have it, thank God for it, recognize the stewardship responsibility that accompanies it, and handle it wisely as God would ordain you to have it. And if you don't have it, don't worry about it, because in a little while, nobody else. Is going to have any either so you are already leading the parade so just say hallelujah i'm already ahead of every, everybody else i've had it both ways i've lived as poor my wife and i our first home was a mud thatch hut in the jungles of africa with a cow dung floor i can close my eyes and smell it now i have had every tropical fever and disease you can name I've also lived in some very sumptuous surroundings and we have friends. Uh, one day I was going to be in Paris, and a friend said, where are you staying? I said, well, I'll find a hotel. Here, take my card. I found myself in the Decrillion Hotel in the Place de Concorde with uh, all of the, all of the uh, uh, amenities of, a, uh, of, of the best hotel in the world. And I can tell you, having lived both sides of the coin, there's not a snap of the finger's difference. Jesus said it like this, the, uh, the, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he may possess. Well, if I'm not of the world, what in the world am I doing in the world? That's the big question. And we have to ask, what was Jesus doing in the world? Anybody think that Jesus just came here, you know, to eat fish and drink wine on the shores of Galilee with some buddies? We know Jesus over and over again declared, the Father sent me. I am here on mission. The works that I do are not my works. They are the works of the one who has sent me. And then in that priestly prayer, John 17, he says, when he says, Father, these whom you have given me are not of the world as I am not of the world. He then says, Father, are you listening? As you sent me, so send I these. And then later, he speaks directly to his followers. And he said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. (laughs) Now I understand why I'm in a world to which Jesus said, I do not belong. I understand That I have already been translated into the kingdom of God. But I have a mission. The Father has sent us. We are not here to create a name for ourselves or accumulate wealth and leave an estate for our children. We are here to invest our time, our energy, our life, our our time, and our resources When heaven and earth melts away and there will not be one scrap from all of it, all the buildings, all the stock certificates, all the silver, all the gold, when it all passes away, the only thing that God is going to salvage out of this entire planet are the never-dying souls of men. And wouldn't you want to spend your life and invest your life in that that will never pass away? No wonder the Bible says he that winneth souls is what? Wise. In 1967, the Americans were told to evacuate the city of Beirut. Our government ordered it. My wife and I packed a suitcase, and with a four-year-old and a two-year-old and a sack of sandwiches, we had to walk to try to, 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 to rendezvous at the point the American government had designated And as we were walking down the road, I looked back at the apartment. It was the first home I'd ever had. I started preaching when I was a child of seven, and my home had been tourist camps and guest rooms in people's houses. And this was the first house I ever lived in that I said, this is my house. My suits are hanging in my closet. And now we were leaving it. And I looked back, and suddenly I thought we may never return. And and I began to chuckle, laugh. And my wife said, what in the world are you laughing about? And I said, I just realized we're leaving home and we'll probably never be back. And she said, yes, I'm asking you, why are you laughing? I said, you know, I never thought of it. And just now as I thought of it, something inside me, as I thought about the things that were leaving, something inside of me shouted, so what? And I felt so good to feel so what about stuff that I'm sorry, I, 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 I. we came back. We were the first Americans to return we were evacuated several times uh, after that and we came back and then I came back and it wasn't there. I didn't laugh because our apartment had been blown asunder, my car had been blown up. I wept for the people that had died in that attack but as for the things that was the same, don't build your life on the things of this world. We found out that day what does matter. We walked a few steps further, and we saw people coming towards us, and we thought, hey, they're going the wrong way. We'd tell them, turn around, go back, you're going the wrong way. And then we recognized them. They were the first members of that fledging church God was helping us birth in the Middle East. And when they heard that the Americans were being taken out, they had left their homes and their families and made their way through riot-torn streets to reach us. Before we left, it was Ali. A little Muslim boy, 17 years of age, who had only accepted Christ a few months before. He'd been kicked out of his family. He lost his job. In fact, he was in hiding because his life was being threatened because he had accepted Jesus. And he jumped up into my arms and he wrapped his arms around my neck and he held on and I thought he would never let me go. And over and over again, he was sobbing, shukran, shukran, shukran. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's what matters. Those things that are eternal matter. And Jesus, if he was standing here before you today, would say, you are not of this world. You are a kingdom person. Live like a kingdom person. Father, we thank you that you have transported us. Now let us to understand what it truly means to be in your kingdom understand what it means to be sent by God Almighty into this world that needs healing and help. And let us be your witnesses. Let us be your light. Let us be your hand extended, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.